Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. The text this morning that she read for us is a troubling text. It's about Israel, and you're going to hear things about Israel, and then you'll hear things about ourselves this morning that are somewhat troubling. It isn't that I'm picking on you. It's just we have to be honest in evaluating who we are and where we stand with God and with each other. Old Samuel, like old Eli and like Moses and Aaron, were really faithful men of God. But in Eli's, we don't know about Moses so much, but in Eli and Samuel's case, their children turned out to be corrupt. And she actually read for you what that corruption was. They, uh, it says here that they turned aside to dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. They were also guilty, uh, the sons of Eli were guilty of sexual indiscretion as well. And so when Samuel's sons, and they're named here, when Joel and Abijah, the, his two sons, were noted as being corrupt, the people finally said, look, and they went to Samuel and said, look, this isn't working for us. We want to be like everybody else. All of the, so the Philistines and the uh, Hittites and the, all the other ites that are mentioned there, they all have a king with skin on. We, we want, want to be like they are. And so what we're really dealing with this morning is the totally natural and universal temptation of being obedient to, their nat to our natural desires rather than to be like God. Now, before anybody points fingers at anybody else, understand this is a universal problem. All of us, all of us, especially those who haven't yet accepted Christ and especially newborn Christians, have a strong urge to do just what we want to do. And we don't care who's opposed to it. If you were to live where I live, and we'll overlook a city parking lot. And on that parking lot are arrows that say, this is one way this way, this is one way this way. You would swear that most people driving a car is either blind, deaf, or dumb. They don't give a hoot what the arrow, which is one way. They don't care. And, and I was standing there, and this pretty young lady in a great old big car, uh, you know, one of those things that's got... 16 seats in it or something like that, one of those expensive $75,000 van type things. She drove by, and I just looked at her. She went by. She didn't like that look at all. She stopped and got out and looked at me and says, what's wrong with you, four eyes? I had glasses on. I said nothing. I just wonder how people can drive when they can't read and write and, and let it go at that. That was not what she wanted to hear. But that, that particular problem is so universal, and all of us, well, hey, every one of us is influenced by our culture. And in most cases, more strongly than we're influenced by the Word of God, more often than not. And now if you don't believe that, Look at the hairdos for both men and women. How they have changed. Look at, at the clothing we wear. How they have changed. 
But that's, see, but it's just changed in the most current fad. It hasn't changed as far as the influence on the individuals. Is Kayla loafing here today? There she is. Now, I, this was prearranged, so don't think I'm just picking on her, even though I do often. She's shaking her head, yeah. This is really a nice kid. Really, she is. And and uh, I, I know it, uh, but I'll apologize for it later. Okay. Kayla works with our young people, as you know, and uh, has about as good a disposition and work habits as anybody I know. But I asked her to come today on purpose because I'm, I, I was afraid to pick on you guys. But, but just now stand over here so everybody can see you. And so then, look at this. <laughs> now, is it true or isn't it that you paid more money for britches with holes in them than you would with regular clothes that, look, that God approves of? Nathan, did we? Say yes, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I, w I wanted you to see this because, and, and then the other thing that I think is so obvious that is really a big deal anymore is in the Old Testament, we would have crucified her because the Old Testament is abundantly clear that says, don't get tattoos. Isn't that true? Yeah. But in her defense, and in defense of most other people who have those things. Because I, I actually asked Alice Kay, I said, can I get a tattoo? I, I'd like to, I would like to have a butterfly on my butt. Because nobody would see it but you, but I can say, you know, I'm like everybody else. So, but when I was her age and younger, much younger really, we, had, we were influenced by fads. Now, they weren't the same as this. I mean, we were smarter than to buy bridges. I don't care if you do call yourself holy because, I mean, that, that's not going to work. The, um, but we had, <coughs> excuse me, I need a snort. We wore blue jeans that sometimes were so tight that you had to have your parents hold them at the bottom of the banister while you slid down into them. And we had cuffs about this high at the bottom they put up, and you could hide your cigarettes and your cigarette lighter and all that stuff in them. Of course, you didn't smoke. No. no. And, and we even had shirts that you could fold up here and hide your cigarettes in them, as well as your notes so you could cheat in class. I mean, we, we were creative. But my point is simply this, that all of us, all of us, at one time or another, especially before we became really serious about our faith, have been strongly influenced by the culture where we live. Now, you can go sit with your husband, but understand he's the head of the household. And <laughs> Anyway... I point that out, and, and, and some of the things that we did as youngsters, you know, you never forget. When, when we graduated from high school, I was 17, and, and uh, uh, on, after we graduated, we had an all-night party, and some of us who had cars, well, it wasn't mine, it was my parents, we, for whatever reason, ended up in Cincinnati. I'd never driven in Cincinnati, and the friend that I had with me, he was in his car, I was in mine, when we had a car full of kids. He said, you just follow me, because I know my way around, and I can get us back to Bracken County, and you can get home. I said, okay. And you're a little frightened, you know, in a big city, and so... We, we were going, getting ready to come back home. We'd been to a restaurant or somewhere, and we were getting ready to come back home. And we got to one of those deals where he'd got through just when the light was turning yellow, and I was far enough behind that by the time I got there, it was red. I did what everybody else does. I went on through it, because that's not what to do today. If you just watch, you know, everybody runs red lights like crazy. And, and, uh, and there was some guy that was watching who had a bubblegum machine on the top, and he went, he pulled me over. 
And he said, why did you do that? You saw me sitting there. And I told him, I said, I've never been in Cincinnati before driving. And, and he has. And he said, you, you keep up with me and I'll get you back home. And he said to me, and I can remember exactly, nice young fella. He said, well, I guess if he'd have jumped off of a building, you jumped off with him. Sounded like my parents. And I said, no, but I'd have been looking over the edge. That wasn't what he wanted to hear for some reason. My point simply is this. Before we are governed by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are governed by two things. We're governed by our own natural desires. I want Every teenager, I want to do what I want to do. And so you rebel against your parents. You rebel against authority. You sneak around, do things. It's universal. And the same thing can generally be true of newborn Christians who haven't matured in their faith. That's the reason the Scripture says we're to bear each other's burdens. And, and, and when somebody stumbles and falls, so it's assumed they will, it's up to us who've been around for a while to give them a hand, lift them up, and encourage them on their way. Israel wanted to be like everybody else. And the, the silly part of that is, under Samuel, in spite of his two corrupt kids, they were grown men by this time in their 50s, who had learned how to use religion to pad their pocketbooks, in spite of that, they had been at peace. You know, if you listen very carefully, it says, Throughout, this is in, in the seventh chapter of 1 Samuel. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. You remember the Philistines were the primary feared enemies of Israel because they were bigger, stronger, and they had technology that the Israelites didn't have. You remember they could make, they had, they had learned how to smelt iron and they could make iron tools. The Israelites were still using slingshots and, and handmade spears and other things. And besides that, they didn't know how to fight anyway. The Philistines were trained and were successful, and yet in spite of that, and they had walled cities, about five big ones, along what's called the Gaza Strip today. You remember David fought against the Philistine Big old guy. He was an exceptionally big guy in Goliath, but he had. But they were just bigger, stronger people. The average height at that time, as far as we can determine from the cadavers, is that the average height of of a Jewish man at that time was somewhere around five three or five four. We don't know exactly how big the Philistines were, but they were substantially larger. And so, in battle, the bigger the guy, the better his chances. But in spite of that, the fact that all of this time, the towns from Ekron to Ath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her, and Israel delivered the neighboring territories from the power of the Philistines, and there was peace among the Israelites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the otherites. And in spite of that, they said, we still want to be like they are. That See, unregenerate people. So what I'm saying is, Israel was not godly. Their leadership were, but Israel itself was not godly. And God said, and Samuel was hurt by it. He said, man, we've had it made. The Lord said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They want another king. I'm the king and they want to replace me. So he said, listen. Listen to them, Samuel. Listen to what they want. And then tell them what the results will be if they get what they want. Let them know they have a choice. And we all have a choice. You choose to accept Christ or you don't. 
You choose to follow Christ or you don't. They had a choice. And their choice was, we won't be like everybody else. Sam, God said, Samuel, you tell them this. You tell them what's going to happen when they get the king they said they wanted. Here's, here's the rest of that eighth chapter. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king will do who will reign over you. He will take your sons and make them serve with chariots and horses. In other words, he said, they're going to be conscripted into the king's military. See, Israel at the time didn't have a military. They were all volunteer soldiers. Whenever there was a problem, they sent out the word, and they showed up with their slingshots and their pitchforks or whatever they had to fight with. And they never lost. As long as they were guided by God, they never lost. He said, and, and, and besides that, he will conscript people to come and to plow his fields, to reap his harvest, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers. I don't know what the heck that is, but it's what it says, and, as well as cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. That's what politicians do today. They bring in their kids. They bring in their kinfolks. They bring in the people who agree with them. They bring in the people who will pay them more. Yeah. There's no hope. There's no hope that I can see in our current political system. I wish I could tell you there was, but I can't. I've been a registered Republican all of my life, and I'm tired of apologizing for them. Not only will he do that, he'll take a tenth of your grain, of your vintage, and give it to his officials and the attendants. It's the spoil system that started way back then. Your men servants, your maid servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he'll take as his own. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself will become his slaves. That's what you'll get. That's what you're going to get if you get a, a king with skin on and replace me as your king. Now, you would think that with that kind of warning, they would say, I'm sorry, I really messed up. But the influence of our culture upon us, especially if we're not regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit, is really overwhelming. Was then, is now. It goes on to say, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king with skin on over us. Then we'll be like the people who live around us. Samuel said, so will it be. So, we're faced with, a, with some questions here that we want to go through. So why? Why did Israel reject God? See, I can ask the same thing about our culture. I think that I think the skid, you got to understand, I'm a lot older than almost all of you. And I've got a little bit of perspective as far as time is concerned that you young ones in particular don't have. And I'm inclined to believe that the skid really picked up steam and tilted and headed downhill when we kept quiet about the government refusing to allow prayer and Bible reading in schools. I'm inclined to believe that that was the tipping point. Now, that's just one man's opinion. But that strong urge on a national basis to do what we want to do. And see, what they've done is really dangerous. The Supreme Court actually made the decision to say that, that the 
And I, and I even give these two kids that were baptized, I gave them a copy of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and you know, because I think it's important for their future. But what they said was that the Constitution is a living document and it's constantly evolving to meet the cultural st standards of the day. It was a brilliant woman who led in that. She just died not too long ago. And liberal biblical scholars said, hey, that's a good idea. The same thing can be said of the Bible. It is a living document that is, should be constantly changing to meet today's culture. Because a lot of stuff in it, they said, uh, it was just relevant to the culture at that time. Now, when you accept that, you have opened the door for whatever the current fad is to be applied to, whether it's political or, or biblical. Let me tell you something that I will not bend to. Matthew will not bend to. And anybody who tries to bend it will get the boot. The Bible is the inherent Word of God that never changes because the Bible says God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Word of God is true and relevant and unchanging and without error. And we cannot compromise that. And if our culture doesn't like it, so be it. Because we're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness above all other things. And the same thing, and some of you politically may get uncomfortable, just kind of wiggle your fanny in your seat, you'll, you'll survive. The Constitution... The Bill of Rights, those documents are to remain absolutely the way they are until and if we get to vote on its change, and that hasn't happened. Now, that's my political two cents worth for the time being. Because, you see, I believe that there is such a thing and that the Bible teaches it. I don't believe that everything is relative. I believe some things are absolute. And one of the things that's absolute is the Bible is absolutely the inerrant, final, and authoritative Word of God. And if you want to feel, well, get into argument with me, you're going to have to give me a book, chapter, and verse. Now, we have to ask this question. Was Israel ever, ever sincere followers of God? You may be shocked at the answer. The answer is no, they were not. If you look carefully here at the 8th verse of the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel let me read it slowly so it'll sink in. Well, start, let's do it back in the 7th verse to make set the context. And the Lord told Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, and that's what they're doing now. You see, Israel was never converted and gave total allegiance to the Ten Commandments or said, you'll have no other gods but me. They never bought that. The leadership did. Moses did. Joshua did. Eli did. Samuel did. But the people didn't. What they did was they added... Jehovah God to the list of the gods they had been worshiping while they were in Egypt. 
and they never got away from that because the pagan gods appealed to the natural desires of the flesh. They actually, as gross as this may sound to you, they actually, as a part of their worship services to Dagon and Chemosh and the other pagan gods, would actually have on the platform above all the people, the chief priest would have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes and then say everybody else should do the same thing. Because, and the more impregnated girls that you have among the prostitutes, uh, the better your crops will be. Because they related fertility to be clear across the board. The young men of Israel were attracted to that. You can see why. The sexual desires of the young are really strong. And so they fell for that. In spite of the solemn warnings that their preacher gave them. So, why did God rescue Israel from Egypt if they didn't deserve it? Why did that happen? Well, if you were to go back to the book of Genesis, the last chapter there in the book of Genesis, it actually tells you exactly why God did what he did. And you, you need to know this because it directly affects our lives as well. But here in the 24th verse of the last chapter, chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, it says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land. Now get this. He promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God had promised Abraham, you come out of the land of the Chaldees and I'll give you this promised land that I have promised to you. That's why it is called the promised land. What he's really saying here is, in simple language, is Israel at no time deserved what God was giving them freely. A land to live in. A land that flowed with milk and honey. A land where they could prosper and live in peace if they would just be faithful to him. Now let's talk about that promises thing for a minute because it becomes important to us now. We need to understand that the promises that God has made, he will keep. He will keep them. Peter describes it this way. In 2 Peter, the third chapter, verses 9 and 10 in particular, he said, The Lord is not slow or slack concerning his promises, as some men count it, but is long-suffering toward us, which means he's patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has promised to be very patient with us. But there's an end to it. Only he knows when that is. And the end of his patience leads to justice and judgment. God had promised old Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and later to Joseph when he went to Egypt. And Joseph hung on to that promise and said, when you all go back, and God will take you back. Please take my bones with you and bury them in the promised land. I want my whole bones to be buried there. Because he knew God would keep his promise. Israel didn't deserve it. But we have to be really careful here. It's easy to point fingers at the Israelites and say, that bunch of thieving bunch who would, yeah, they had no, they just weren't faithful. They did whatever they wanted to do, whatever felt good to them, they would do. But be careful. Because the whole message of the New Testament that deals with the gospel says the same thing about us. 
Is there one thing that any of us can say on any given day that we merited for Jesus to come and die on the cross and pay for our sins? Name one if you can. You see, it was all God keeping his promise that he would save those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Because salvation isn't earned, it's a free gift of God. So we have to be a little careful here about pointing fingers and say, Israel, shame on you. How could you do that? Jesus is the, is, the, is the promised one of God. He promised he would send from the book of Genesis in the opening chapters. And he kept his promise. Have you ever asked your question, because we were talking about it at the door some this morning. Have you ever asked the question, what does it take to get people to turn from their natural, I want to do whatever I want to do, desires that we all have, to get to the place where we say, this, something's got to be better than this. And start seeking God. What does it take? I hate to tell you this, but my experience says it's difficulty, tra sometimes tragedy, and often heartache that leads us to the place where we say, Gee, this is beyond me. I don't think I can accept, I can't, I can't live with this. And then we start seeking God. If you want to know in our silly culture, as strong as it is as a satanic influence in our world. Why so many of our kids are dying. Self-inflicted. They know very good and well that the direction they're going is going to lead to their death. And teenage suicide is going through the roof. Why? It's because they're living without hope. And a person who tries to live without hope is, in a, is a life of misery. What does it take? I think we had it demonstrated to us here pretty clearly on January the 3rd. Do you remember? Because I bet you a lot of you were watching it. Since I'm not a football fan, I wish it didn't exist. You see, when Alice Kay and I were dating, there was a football player at Eastern Kentucky University that was trying to get her away from me. I had hated football ever since. But we, <coughs> probably most of us were watching on January the 3rd. Cincinnati Bengals were playing Buffalo, weren't they? And one of the Cincinnati kids, I think his name was Higgins, tackled a young man named Damar Hamlin. His heart stopped. And they knew that things had gotten way beyond what they could handle. And there was nothing left to do except fall on their knees. And they surrounded that young man. And guys who had only used probably 10 minutes or half hour before in the locker room used God's name and who knows how because I've spent a lot of time in locker rooms and I've never found very many of them that were anything other than vile and ornery. I've never been in the girls' restroom or bathroom or whatever, but... I know what goes on among the men. Language is coarse. Bunch of naked guys running around. It's not a spiritual atmosphere, I guarantee you. 
F-bombs flying around like bats in a belfry. Half hour later, tragedy strikes. And the guys who could only use God's name in vain now were pleading with God for mercy. Help us here. We've got a situation beyond our control. Help us. And he did. Yeah. One of the tough things that I have to say today, in spite of the fact that I really like athletics. I do. I like to play them. I like to watch them. I like to bulviate as an expert about it. That means acting a fool if you don't know what that means. Thinking you saying things that you're guessing about that you really don't know. But folks, we've run into a problem. Serious problem. See, I don't I don't think there's a thing wrong with athletics as long as it's kept within the framework that God intended. I think it's probably a good thing. The, actually the scripture addresses it. You see in the time of Jesus and then for several hundred years later, the Grecian games were known all over the Mediterranean world. They were something everybody looked forward to and, and wanted to participate in. And it was with this in mind because the church at Ephesus wasn't that far away. They're on the edge of Turkey. And the knowledge of the games was universal. The Apostle Paul directing to a young man who probably was really interested at least said this. Have nothing to do with godless myths because there was a relationship of the games to Grecian gods. Which made it a type of exercise in... Uh, False God participation. So he said, these are godless myths and old wives' tales, but, re but train yourself to be godly. Use the kind of, of, in, of, of commitment and training and so on that is necessary to participate in the Grecian games. Use those, that same principle, in developing your spiritual life. He said, and he goes on to say, and I'm glad he said this, because uh, he said, but godliness has value for all things. It has real value. For physical training is of some value. So he didn't say it was bad in itself, the participation in athletics, the exercising because uh, these two sweet little girls over here told me when we were talking about baptism and living the Christian life, blah, blah, blah. Because yeah, I'm really interested in that kind of stuff. They want to play softball in college. Hope it works out for them. I played softball on a church team in Danville, Illinois years ago. And several of us got to, I may keep, I better get my clock out here because if I don't, I catch heck. It says here that I've got seven minutes, but my watch is really slow. We got to play, several of us were selected to play against a four-man softball team, fast pitch. The guy who pitched for them was a Christian man. His name was Eddie Fainer. You can look him up on the, Google him sometime if you want to. It's really interesting. I played shortstop or second base most of the time on, on our team because my arm wasn't strong enough to play shortstop most of the time. 
And and when I came up to bet, Fainer said, because we'd talked ahead of time, he said, this guy looks really tough, you know. So he, what he does is he goes out and stands on second base and pitches from second base. And I didn't touch the ball and three pitches and I was out. He struck me out standing on second base. You know how good I was. I didn't have sense enough to bunt because that would have been my only hope. He was magnificent. It's a wonderful game. It's a lot of fun. But hang on now. This is where it gets testy. Anytime that any of us elevate any kind of of anything above our commitment to God is idol worship. And why does every, why is everybody so excited about athletics in our culture? Because most people are bored and unhappy most of the time, and when you win a game, it's exciting. And it satisfies the natural desires of the, of the flesh to the extent that we're willing to say, hey, if there's a, a basketball game, a softball game, a volleyball game, at the same time there's a worship service, we lose every time. Why? Because we like Israel. Now hang on to this. We like Israel have never really bought into the idea of keeping God as king of our life. We haven't. The result is, we've been warned, we've been told, this thing is this wonderful experiment in democracy is going to fall apart. It's falling. Now, dangerously on the precipice right now. If it keeps going the way it's going, hear me carefully. You better learn Mandarin Chinese if you want to be successful. It's a dangerous situation. I understand the temptation. I really do. Because for depressed people who feel like, geez, you know, life ought to have a little joy and happiness. It's the pursuit of happiness, isn't it? So anything that gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling and makes us feel good, that temptation is so strong that we say, God, I know you love us and I'm depending on your grace, so, but would you take a hike while I do what I want to do and get some more warm, fuzzy feelings? That's the culture we live in. And it's really strong. And Satan uses it in a magnificent way to accomplish his purposes. Here's what we really want, and with this I'll close because it's quitting time about, at least for you all. We live in a culture that old codgers like me have helped create with the best of intentions, but we created a mess. We've created through our kids and our grandkids a couple of generations of folks who want the benefits without responsibilities. And it's a dangerous game. Let me explain it this way, because you'll know what I mean. Most of us were so busy trying to make, accumulate more, make a better living, blah, 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 blah. Most of us, in raising our children, maybe on a Friday, maybe on a Saturday, we would give them an allowance. 
we agreed upon an allowance, whatever it was. Not realizing that what we were doing was creating a culture, even among Christians, of being able to get something you haven't earned. I was in a meeting probably a couple of years ago now, and uh, in that meeting, this guy just really excoriated all of us on that very principle. He said, look, if you're going to give your daughter five bucks or whatever you decide it is, and nobody stops to that anymore, she should have to make the beds. She should have to run the vacuum cleaner. She should have to earn all of it. And if she doesn't, she doesn't get it. Because if you don't and you give it to them, you're actually saying, well, you're entitled to what you haven't earned. And our whole culture has gotten to the place where they say, we want what we haven't earned. And the politicians are smart enough to know you take care of that and we can stay in office. That's why I'll be honest with you, I'm for term limits. Get them out. Now, don't clap. But I'm at the place now where I really don't care about the politics of anything. The kingdom of God has within it clear-cut guidelines. And in the spiritual world, it gets difficult because in the spiritual world, we get what we don't deserve. That's what grace and mercy is. But in the world controlled by the devil, you better be careful. He's not gracious. And our world is controlled by Satan. That's what the Bible says. He is the prince of this world. That's the term that's used. I didn't write it. I just know what's in it. So we are aliens as Christians in this world, and I'm telling you, it's going to get tougher. If you want to help turn this thing around in a world that is run by our Constitution and Bill of Rights, you raise your children to say this. You earn what you get. If you're, if you're misbehave, you earn discipline. If you behave, you earn blessings. That'll help turn the thing around. But we're on the precipice of going over the hill. And the only enemy here now the only enemy that Marxism fears is the church. That's the only one. So where do you think that socialism and, and Marxism all the same, where do you think they will put the pressure when they get in control? It'll come to the church. But you know, We've got a secret. We have a God who has unlimited power. And when a handful of people are faithful to him, glorious and great things happen. Don't give up. Seek God. Seek God with all your heart. And the blessings that will come are beyond your comprehension. I'm an old man. And I'm tired. So I'm going to quit. But if there's anybody here, anybody, who doesn't have citizenship, citizenship in God's kingdom, please don't leave here.
without seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he'll take care of the rest of it. That's his promise. And he keeps his promise. I love that old chorus. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. They can be yours too. So let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Help us, I pray, Father, to seriously evaluate what our testimony as Christians is to the next generation. Do we conform to this world or are we transformed by the renewing of our minds so we start thinking your thoughts and thinking to do things your ways? Help us, O oh God, to rise above those natural desires which always get us into trouble. To reach out to you and seek as our highest priority the virtues of the kingdom of God. Dismiss us, O oh God, with your richest favor, I pray in Jesus' name. And all the people say it, amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Oh, yeah, all the chairs have to come down. Women, you can stack them four or five high. Guys, the little doodads are along the sides uh, to help get that done because the blood drive depends on us having this thing open. Please help us. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.